It's good to see you all this morning. I trust you're well. Now, I just wonder kind of what conversations you've just been having. Maybe you, um, you listened to Tim when he said, speak to someone particularly that you don't know. And I wonder if you've just chatted to someone that you don't know. If you did that, I wonder how you went about describing yourself. I wonder if you kind of, obviously you'd have given your name. Um, but I wonder what comes next. I wonder how you would uh, go about um, saying who you are. Maybe you would say where you're from, as we heard some of the lovely people coming into membership said where they were from. Uh, maybe you would have said what you do for a job. Um, you probably didn't say uh, your gender, because that's probably self-explanatory. Um, but you, uh, you, you probably gave some words to describe yourselves. So uh, just hold that thought for now, but we're gonna, that's going to be significant uh, as we go on across this morning. How, it, how is it that we describe ourselves? How is it that we ultimately define ourselves? Now, we're going to be um, going into Nehemiah chapter 10 today. We've been going through a series in the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament, uh, the first part of the Bible. We're calling this series Arise, and it's, all, it's a wonderful story about how God's people rise up and um, fulfill the purposes that he has for them. And uh, this week, and then next week, we're going to be uh, finishing the series. We've seen how this guy, Nehemiah, this is his journal, essentially, uh, this book. This guy, Nehemiah, was one of thousands of people who had been exiled from their nation of Israel. Uh, Israel, uh, God's uh, treasured possession, we read in the Old Testament. These were the nation that were to look very different to the rest of the world um, and to obey him and trust him and live radically different lives. That was their kind of... Um, their mandate, really. And we see that actually in different periods of their history, they disobey God. They don't obey the things that he's laid out for them. And God sends prophets. He sends uh, men to come and um, speak to the nation to warn them, if you continue in these ways, then actually your nation's going to be overrun, it's going to be overtaken, and your people are going to be swept out into exile. And that's what happens. And uh, Nehemiah is one of thousands of people who have found themselves in another nation. And he's working as a cupbearer to the king of Persia. So it's a pretty responsible job. And he gets news of the state of Jerusalem. He hears about the kind of way in which Jerusalem has been completely laid to waste by the enemies of Israel. And at this news, he weeps and he mourns and he begins to pray and he fasts and prays. And then he goes to the king and says, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. I've got to go. Would you let me go to go and rebuild my city? And not only does he ask for permission to go, but he asks for resources. And the king graciously gives him the resources that he needs to see the walls of Jerusalem built up. And so Nehemiah heads to Jerusalem, and there he finds a people that are not unified at all. There's a lot of people who are very confused, scared, uh, intimidated by the nations around them. And Nehemiah faces opposition as he sets about trying to see these, these walls rebuilt so that the city of Jerusalem can be secure and glorious once again. And so he starts this great building project. And we see the people uh, uniting around Jeremiah to see each person kind of playing their part, seeing the walls built up. And then we get to chapter 8 and we see this great phrase which said that um, as one man, it might say in your version, the people gathered together. They gathered as one man, right at the beginning of uh, chapter 8. They're a united people suddenly. They've got a purpose together. 
And then we see that they open up the word of God, which had been neglected by the people of Israel for many, many decades. They'd neglected God's teaching. And so the word of God is opened up by Ezra, and uh, he himself had been through quite a building project, helping to restore the temple which had been uh, destroyed. And so the people of God are back to the word of God. And as we saw last week, they, they repent. Collectively, they repent for the ways in which they and their ancestors have um, rejected God. They've neglected his teaching. They've not lived his, uh, in his ways. And we see this really, really long prayer in chapter 9. And uh, they're praying, God, forgive us, restore to us all that you need to restore to us. They, they ask uh, God for his mercy on their people. They're united together in, uh, under God's word, in prayer. And today, as we're going to see, they commit to living for him. There's a unity uh, of commitment to God that we see in chapter 10. It, it looked like some things. It looked like some things that they actually commit to doing. Um, and, but we write, see right at the beginning of chapter 10 a whole bunch of names, which you're not going to read out. But we see here, there's just all these names listed out. All these people from uh, kind of all different backgrounds coming together and saying, together we commit to some things. I love it that, as uh, Amife shared, as we were welcoming in new members, I love the diversity of this church. And I love the diversity of this church. And um, I get to kind of see it quite often when I'm preaching. I can see it before me, that there's just such a, a mixture of people from all backgrounds. God loves individuals. There's, there's names here that make it into the book. They make it into the Bible. We know that, that our names, if you know Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're, you're, you're known by God. He values you. He knows you. He cares for you deeply. You're not a number to him. And these verses show us exactly that, all these names listed. But the big deal here is not individuality. In this passage, the big deal is unity. And we see the people commit to some things, and we see we and our and us. We see the people saying, together, we're going to commit. It's, it's more than about um, praying and singing. You know, God loves our prayers and our singing. I'm, I'm sure of that. But it's, it's more than a song, as that famous song goes. I'm going to bring you more than a song. For a song in, a song in itself is, is not what you have required. He wants a, an obedience and a commitment to him. So we, we see firstly in, in verse 30, which we'll read in a moment, a, unite, a unified decision amongst the people to live for God in their relationships. They, they've kind of come back to God's ways and say, we're going to live for you in the way in which we live out our relationships. This is what it says in verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. You need to understand this wasn't a, a racial thing. It wasn't an ethnic thing i.e. we've got to stay to one, one race. Because actually the people of Israel already by this point have got significant figures in their history who were not ethnically Jewish. So Rahab, she gets a mention in, in Hebrews as being one of the heroes of faith that we can emulate. She was not Jewish. She entered into God's people and she wasn't from a, a Jewish ethnic background. We see that um, Ruth marries uh, a Moabite that is not... Uh, not from a Jewish background, and Ruth ends up being in the, in, the, in the line of the great King David. This is a significant thing. It's probable that Moses married someone from Ethiopia. 
a very significant figure in the history of the people of Israel. So this wasn't an ethnic deal here. This was about the people saying, God is number one, and we're not going to compromise. And so we're not going to marry for convenience or for um, kind of uh, financial benefits. We're going to say, say, God is number one, and therefore in our relationships, we're going to honor him. We're going to make sure that he is number one in the way in which we go about our relationships. There would have come opportunities for their sons or daughters to marry into uh, other nations and tribes around that would have been quite convenient, that might have enhanced them financially, but they're saying, no, no, God is number one. Families committing to that. Secondly, there was a unified decision to trust God in radical obedience. We see in verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath... We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. So there, this is quite significant, okay? Words like Sabbath and holy days and things like that just might seem quite alien to us. But they're resolving to trust God, and that sometimes means looking quite silly to the world around. Because there would have been times when Traders would have come by on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday for them. And they would have said, no, we're not going to do trading today because the Sabbath is the day when we stop. That's what Sabbath means. It means to stop, to rest. And it would have looked nonsensical around to a world that says, if you want to get ahead, you've got to work all the time. You've got to keep going and keep going and keep going. And they're saying, no, no, we are going to return back to stopping Once a week, just downing tools, not doing work. And that would have looked nonsensical to those around. And it wasn't just the Saturdays, there was other holy days as well in their calendar. And then there was, of course, every seventh year, they decided they were not going to plow the land. Just think about that. Okay, we... we, (laughs) We go to the supermarket and we buy our meat and our veg and it it just magically appears in the supermarket. We don't give much thought to how it got there and it gets on our plates and we eat it. We have no thought about all the hard work that's gone in to producing that food. These people understood what what went into producing food. And they're saying every seventh year, because God has commanded it, we are not going to plow the land. That means we're going to trust God that he's going to provide food for us. And you know what? Some of you will know this. Some of you are scientific and clever in different ways. That actually, it is good for soil to have a fallow year. It is good for erosion. It's good for the nutrients in the soil. It's good for all kinds of ways. They didn't know that back then. So this is a, this is a really this is a step of faith. Saying we're going to trust God, even though it might look a bit silly, even though people might look on and say, what on earth are you doing there was a unified decision to trust God in radical obedience. Thirdly, there was a unified decision to give financially. This is what we read in uh, verse 32 and onwards. They say this, We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. And then the the verses that come right after it are about the other ways in which they're going to give to the yearly... uh, upkeep of the temple and all of the various rituals and holy days that they had, they say, we're going to commit financially. This was uh, such a big deal for them. The temple was, was like the center of the center of their world. It was the place where they brought acceptable 
worship to God. It was a place where they made sacrifices. It was a place where uh, God's presence dwelt in a special way. And so they're saying here, we're going to give to the upkeep of the temple. We're going to give to the uh, upkeep of the priests that run it. We're going to give to the various things that need to be bought in order to do all of the various sacrifices and rituals that we have. This cost money. And the people decide that they're going to give a portion of their money each year to the upkeep of the temple and its system. Again, that would come under challenge in hard times, would it not? They would find themselves thinking, Have I, is that the best use of my money? Can I be giving it something else? They're saying, no, we're committing to this. They committed themselves in unity, finally, not to neglect the house of the Lord. They say this in uh, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. They were not going to let the temple and the worship that went on at the temple uh, go down the pan. That's what they decided. That's what they decreed. They were going to contribute to its upkeep. They were going to see this continue. They were going to be a people who had God at the center and they were going to be a people who recognized that this was such an important part of their identity. You see, their very identity was that they were, they were Jewish. They were God's treasured possession, the ones who had been taken out of slavery in Egypt, the ones who God had set his love upon. You know, every single day, a Jewish man would have a, a marker on his body to show, I am of the people of God. That was just something, they, that, that was what identified them. They were a people that belonged to God. That would be the first thing they'd say, I, I'm of the people of Israel. That's what identified them. And they're saying, we're going to center our lives on God and on his worship. We're not going to neglect this. That's what they're committing to here. And then when we see what happens in the next chapter, in chapter 11, the city of Jerusalem is repopulated. Thousands of people move into the city. Now it's got walls that actually are half decent. And they've got a temple system running again. They repopulate the city. And then at the end of chapter 12, which is where we're going to kind of get up to today, we see that there's this great celebration service where uh, thousands of people gather. There's, there's two choirs. There's, there's a band. And uh, there's great joy and celebration. And we read right at the end uh, in verse 43... On that day, so that they're dedicating the walls to God. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So in the neighboring towns and cities, the neighboring nations, they could hear the sound of rejoicing. There would have been horns blown and drums beaten, and there was a rejoicing in the city. It makes me think of the time when we, we first gathered here in this building just over two years ago. And this building that had been disused for 15 years or so, and suddenly there was hundreds of people flooding in, rejoicing, uh, flooding out again with joy in our hearts. It kind of made me think, what on earth might the neighbours be thinking here? Like, what must they be thinking? Suddenly this, this building's full of life again. There's people coming in, people flowing out. And this is a really a very high point in the book of Nehemiah. The job is done. The walls are completed. They're dedicating the walls to God. There's rejoicing. 
There's great joy. There's a people under the word of God saying, we want to come back to what he says. There's a people of prayer, people of sincere prayer, a people who say, we're going to commit our lives in these areas to you, Lord. It's all yours. This is a real high point because what's more is that the nations around know that God's people are back. God's people are back where they need to be. God's people are back doing what they should be doing. God's people are back under his word, rejoicing in him, and, and the world around can see there's joy in Jerusalem. It's a high point, and very sadly, as we're going to see next week, this does last for years, but it doesn't ultimately last. The book ends on something of a low note, so just a bit of a warning on that one for next week. But what, what relevance do these really good chapters have for us? How can we draw out from this uh, some things for us today? We do believe that this book, the Bible, is the Word of God. We do believe that it's, it's God-breathed. We believe that it's profitable for us in the 21st century, the supposed progressive 21st century where we've somehow you know, managed to build uh, computers that will be smarter than humans very soon. We've, we've managed to build crafts that can go to Mars and soon we'll have people walking on Mars in the next decade. We've got a lot of technological advancement and yet, there's still an absolute mess in our world, is there not? You just don't, it's, just, it's unbelievable, it's heartbreaking what's going on, not just in the Middle East, but in Ukraine and in parts of Africa and all over the world, there's a, there's a mess. And it's not just war, it's all kinds of heartbreak and dis, uh, breakdown. And We need this, guys. We need the wisdom that comes from this book. We need to come under it and say, this is what we submit our lives to. We need it. We need to, to, to get all that we can from this book for our lives. There's still so much darkness. We need the wisdom. So when it comes to Nehemiah, we've already seen that there is so much in this ancient text, 450 years before Christ, so it's two and a half thousand years old. We've seen so much in this ancient text that is for our lives today. But if there's, if there's one thing that I want us to, to take from this book is that we are the people of God and we've got to arise, we've got to rise up to, to walk in the things that he has called us to walk in, to take our place in his purposes in the world. Friends, God, he wants a unified people. Like the people we read of in these chapters, he wants a people that are under his word, he wants a people that are rejoicing together. He wants a people that are sincerely people of prayer, who are committing not just to sing and pray, but actually areas of their lives to him in radical obedience. He didn't just want a people that could be a forgiven people, but a people that shine, a people that radiate him to those around. They're people from every tribe and tongue, not just one nation. It was always meant to be a global deal. This was always in God's heart. The nations were always in his heart. It's been blown open to the nations now. And, and Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, writes to uh, Titus, his friend and co-worker. And he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is God's will, friends. He wants a people, not just individuals, 
Not just uh, people who maybe have a, a walk with God on their own, but a people who are united together. And, and here's where you really need to listen to me. You really need to listen to this because we are swimming in waters that are very, very uh, opposed to that way of thinking. We're swimming in waters where it is all about expressive, radical individualism. Where it is you do you. You focus on you. Don't let anyone else tell you how you're to live your life. Don't care about the society around you or any community that you might be part of. You do you. Who's seen the M&S advert this week? The Christmas advert. It's been in the news a fair bit. They talk about thismus. And this Christmas, thismus, you do you. Don't worry about tradition. Don't do anything else that uh, others might expect of you, but you do you. And that's kind of a bit of fun. And, you know, the, the whole idea of the advert is to get you talking about M&S. And here we are. But it, it is, it's, an, it's, a, it's an example of the age in which we live, where we encourage just to be us, and you do you. Don't think about a wider community, just be an individual doing what you want to do. And this is not what God has for us. He saves us, he forgives us of our sins, he brings us out of slavery to sin, but he wants to unite a people. This is God's heart, to bring you into a people, that you belong to the people of God now. You are Christ's people. He's our great captain. We belong to him. Our primary identity is not the things that you might have said right at the beginning. It's not where you're from. Your primary identity is not the nation that you're from. The primary identity you have is not the job that you do. It's not your gender is that you belong to Jesus. It doesn't mean we delete all those other identities, but we demote them to the right place. We belong to Jesus. And the apostles in the New Testament, they hammer this home again and again and again. You are citizens of heaven. You're not citizens of Ipswich, primarily. You belong to a, a city that is to come. The heavenly Jerusalem that we're going to one day receive, with Jesus at the centre. That's what you belong to. That's your, that's your home, ultimately. Your identity is, is not rooted primarily in where you're from. Although God does not encourage us to delete those things and say, well, I don't really have anything to do with my nation. No, no, no. But Jesus is our number one identity. Being in his family, being his people, belonging to him. We're citizens of heaven. We're saints, the New Testament calls us. We're holy ones. We're called by him. We're a royal priesthood. More than anything else that we used to think defined us, we are God's people. We're part of his people. We're the body. Jesus is the head. And friends, part of being his means that, like the Israelites in the book of Nehemiah, in these chapters that we've just read, we submit to him. We submit things to him. From this text, we see some of the things that the people of Israel do. They submit themselves in different areas. But we say to God, actually, have it all. We don't conform to the pattern of this world because there is a pattern and the world wants, you, wants to squeeze you into its mold. But instead, we lay our lives down as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And we say, you can have it all. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is, is daily saying, God, have it all. Don't just have this little bit of my life. It's all yours. 
And as we behold Jesus together, we are transformed, as has already been said this morning, from one degree of glory to the next. And sometimes it feels like a frustratingly slow process. Sometimes we're exasperated by our own sin and failure. But this is God's will for us, that he will take us from one degree of glory to the next. This is what he's up to. But what of the areas that the Israelites gave themselves to in this chapter? I think they're very significant for us today. They commit to saying that our relationships are going to be lived out before God. They say we're not going to give our daughters to men from other nations. We're not going to give our sons to women from other nations. They're saying we're not, we're not going to get entangled in romantic relationships with those that don't serve the true and living God. And, and mums and dads here, I hope you pray for your kids a lot. I'm sure you probably do. <laughs> I pray for my children a lot. And I'm praying more than anything else, I'm praying, Lord, let them know and love you for the rest of their lives. That's my number one prayer. But I also pray, Lord, if you have marriage for them one day, may it be to someone who loves and knows you. I pray that for them a lot. And you know what? I tell them I pray that for them. We don't tell them they have to get married. <laughs> That's not an expectation we're kind of piling on them. But I say, if you get married one day, I'm praying that God will have, I'm saying to my daughters, I'm praying that God will have men for you that love him first and foremost. I'm saying to my son, if you get married one day, I'm praying that God will give you a woman who loves him first and foremost. And I'm okay telling them that. Do you want to pray that for your children? Yeah. <laughs> Might you give yourself to praying for that, for them? Listen, if, you, if you are, you've come to know Jesus in, in, in years gone by and your spouse hasn't, I'm not condemning you. This is a difficult situation. You know it to be difficult. And I think you know that you would want to pray for your children, that if they know Jesus, that they'd marry someone who also knows Jesus. I think you'd agree with me. Because Jesus is not just an add-on to our lives. He is everything. He's the center. And so we can't, we can't kind of enter into a, a kind of one flesh thing with someone with Jesus is not at the center. Listen, I, I want to hear me. I know there'll be many here in this place that have married and they've become a Christian and their spouse doesn't want to know. We want to stand with you and pray with you. It's hard. But this is such a significant thing. Parents, pray for your children in this. Tell them you're praying for them in this as well. I, I do believe this is really significant for us. They're clear. We're, we're going to give ourselves to, to our relationships being lived out before God. We as God's people live out our relationships before God. This means obeying him even when we don't think it looks like it makes much sense to the culture around us. It says in Hebrews 13, let, the marriage, let marriage be honoured by all and let the marriage bed be kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That doesn't make sense in our culture. The notion of a marriage bed is laughable to our culture. You need to understand that. It's laughable. Because every comedy we watch, every series we watch, 
There's no notion of a marriage bed. It's just, well, just jump into, what, into bed with whoever you want to jump into bed with. But let marriage be honoured by all. And let the marriage bed be kept pure. And not, you know, there's, there'll be some here, you just know, oh, that hits you. That's okay. That's okay if it hits you. God will forgive you. Come to him. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Ask him to help you. This is not, this is not culturally cool. <laughs> you just need to know that. We will look stupid to the world around us when we say, let the marriage bed be kept pure. And I felt even as we were in worship, I felt God say to me, there's someone here and you are being pressured by your boyfriend to sleep with him. And you can stand strong now and say no. And actually, if you're being pressured, you need to break that relationship off. Let me tell you that as one of your pastors. I've heard him say that to me. If that's you, we want to stand with you and help you. Don't just go it alone. This is such a key thing, guys. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. There's all sorts of confusion out there, isn't there? Mums and dads, grandparents here, you declare, as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. There's all kinds of mess and confusion. Hurt. Let us trust God in obedience no matter what. Just like the Israelites in the Sabbath say, um, it may not seem sensical to the world around, but I'm going to live under this word. I'm going to come to this word and say, this is what I'm living by. Even if the world doesn't get me, I'm going to trust. I'm going to see the words of Jesus. I'm going to see the words of his apostles writing under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to, I'm going to lay my life down. And I'm going to say, this is what I'm living my life by. Let us be those that Give financially to God's purposes. This money, we had a fiver on us, okay? This money is, is not my money, it's God's money. I, I believe that to be true. I have to remind myself that it's true regularly. And I think you do too. This is not my money, it's God's money. And I get to steward it and submit it to him. I don't believe God's a killjoy, I don't believe we can't buy things that are nice and enjoy leisure and things like that. I don't believe that for a moment. But I do believe we should be living before him in the area of our finances and bringing it to him. Bringing decisions to him. Talking those things through with him. I believe that. I think that's a good thing to do. You know, again, the, the waters we're swimming in, the world says, this is yours, you've earned it. The Bible says, no, no, no this is his and I steward it. This is his, and I steward it. I'm going to set aside money, like these guys, I'm going to set aside money, and I'm going to give it to the purposes of God in my generation. I'm going to invest in the kingdom of God, where, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. I'm going to, I'm going to commit to giving financially to the life of the church. I do think that's important, friends. I don't know who gives what, don't want to know who gives what. But I do believe it's important for all of us to play our part. Money will, will grip you if you make it an idol. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of anxiety will grip your life. If you, if you love money, if this is kind of number one in your life, 
You'll be gripped by anxiety, gripped by greed, gripped by bitterness, seeing other people that have more than you. The love of money is, is a root of all kinds of evil, friends. Let's be those that say, God, before you, this is yours. It's not mine, it's yours. <laughs> I submit it to you. I, I steward it for you. Let us not neglect the house of the Lord, friends. I don't talk about giving a lot here. Some weeks I get a sort of light berating from some of my African brothers and sisters because they say, we don't talk about giving much here. I do, I get that. Some of you know that to be true. You get taught about it all the time. But it's so important we say, this is not, this is not ours, it's God's. I'm going to submit it to him. Let us give ourselves to the house of the Lord. Let us not neglect it. The apostles, those writing in the New Testament, they were consumed with a vision for the house of the Lord. They were consumed with a vision for it. Not a physical building like the temple, but a people. A people who were, as they gathered together, the the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, it says in Ephesians 2. A people who would be one new man in Christ, drawn together from every nation, united in him. A people who would be the household of God, relating to each other like mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. A people who would be the pillar of truth, as Paul says to Timothy. The church is the pillar of truth, holding up Jesus to the world. They were obsessed. They were captivated by a vision for the people of God, the house of God, the church. Men and women in Christ from every background. Let us not neglect what they so treasured, friends. Let's not lose sight of a glorious vision of God's church. Let's not lose sight of it. Let's not neglect it and think, well, you know, it's Jesus and me and I'll kind of do what I want to do. No, no, no. They were gripped by something. Let us also be gripped by this vision of the church. You see, sometimes we get asked, I remember when we first looked to move to Ipswich, Sarah and I had a meeting with a bunch of wonderful people from this church and we, were, we hadn't even said we were coming by this point and one person said to me, what's your vision for the church? And I was like, well, it's all in here, really. I don't really have one. The, the Bible lays out the vision for the church, the vision for who the church is to be. It's very clear. The bride of Christ, the people who cannot wait for Jesus to return, devoted to him, saying, Jesus, we can't wait to be with you. And we're going to purify ourselves awaiting that great day. The Bible says we're the body of Christ. He's the head. And we get all play our part to make him look better, not ourselves. The, the Bible's got the vision for the church. But God has spoken to us locally. His prophetic men and women have brought words to us over many years. Words that even led us to this building here. We were thinking about developing our old building And then we looked at some prophetic words and it was clear. God's leading us elsewhere. Words of us having a storehouse of men and women, training men and women up, sending them out. Aircraft carrier, bringing bringing the gospel to the nations. A people laden with mercy and help for the community. These, these, uh, These words have really shaped us. They shape what our priorities are. We believe in God for a great thing here in Ipswich. He's already doing it. Look around you. It's it's wonderful. But we're asking God, give us more, Lord. There was a, a, well, there is a football manager called Jose Mourinho. And he was, 
known for in his glory days in my team, Chelsea, when they were doing so well, uh, they would kind of get a 1-0 lead and then they would park the bus. That's kind of what Jose was known for, parking the bus, which means you suddenly go very defensive and try and hold on to the lead. And a friend of mine this week said, we're not to be those that park the bus. We say, God, let us have more. We want to see more people come to know you. And so we're looking forward. We're looking forward. We're saying, God, we want to make more space. Because there's not any space here. Really, look around. There's not much. When the children and youth were in, there was no, there was no space. And so we're saying in February, we're going to two services. Believing God's going to bring more. I mean, this is not about numbers. It's about individuals. We're hearing stories again and again of extraordinary things that God is doing in people's lives. So many baptisms that we keep seeing and others that are on the way, hearing stories of God breaking into lives. And we're saying, God, we need more room for that. So from February, two services, 9.15 and 11.30. Can I ask you, please, to tell us which service you want to come to? We've had about 200 responses to this. That's about, well, it's about less than a quarter of the people that are meaningfully connected with the church here. So please, can you go ahead and just commit to uh, which service you're going to look to attend. Um, really pleased to say we've got children and youth, lots of them in both services. So if you're worried about that, that is not anything to be worried about. Come, come with us, friends, on this journey. We're looking to see a, a site or an expression of Hope Church established in the southwest of Ipswich. We believe God's spoken to us about that. And uh, from January, we're going to see a life group meeting there weekly that's going to pray for that area of Ipswich. Maybe you want to be a part of that. We believe God's got big things for us. There's people here who are already feeling stirred to go to the nations and saying, I'm going to go back to my home nation or to another nation that God's laid on my heart. We're believing this. This is, our, this is what God has for us. That's normal church life, actually. That's what normal church life should be. Stirred to think not just for our town, but for the nations, for the towns and cities around we believe in God for big things. Come with us. We are not a perfect church. You're going to be hard-pressed to find one. You're going to find things that you're not happy about, find things that you want to see improved. You know, we want to see those improved too. <laughs> we likely do. But come with us. If you're not a member here, if you've not come through the Getting Connected course, as these 20 or so brothers and sisters have done, we've got another one in January, and we'd love you to come on that. You can see the website on there to go and book yourself in. Come with us. Dive deeper into what we feel God is leading us into. Put your roots down with us. Maybe you've been coming for a long time. You think, I am a member because I come quite often. You're not. We'd love you to come on our Getting Connected course and explore that with us. Get to know some of the leaders of the church. Put your roots down with us. We think that's such an important thing. Let's be those who are a people of prayer. As Tim has already exhorted us, We've got a prayer meeting this Tuesday. Those, of, those who are available, many of you will have to work. You can't be there. 3rd of December, Sunday night, 3rd of December, we're going to have a prayer and vision night in this room. Let's gather together. Let's get the church together to pray. I was chatting with an Indian lady who was at um, this leadership conference we had last week in this building. And she, she and her husband have ministered around the world, including in the Middle East, in parts where it's illegal to be a Christian. She said, this is tough ground. She said, because people don't see prayer as the priority. She said, you, you kind of just try and do it in your own strength here. She was very humble with it. I was challenged by that. You know, the parts of the world in which the gospel is exploding exponentially are in places where they know how to pray. 
in the, in the south, the global south and in the global east. You know, the Western church has got lots to learn. We've got a lot to learn. We've got things to offer. You know, when, we've got things to offer, but we've got a lot to receive. So let's be those that pray. This is how we're going to respond today. And we're going to stand together and we're going to pray out a prayer together that I've just crafted for us. And I'd love it. Let's stand now and the band can come and be ready to lead us in a final song. There will be opportunity to, to receive prayer for any of the things that you just have been stirred by today. Maybe you just know, I need to give my life to Jesus. Why don't, why don't you kind of, even as we're singing, just come over to this area over here, to my right and to your left. There'll be a team of people, and that's a hint to you, team of people, to be there. And we'd love to pray with you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, if you're struggling in some ways, you're a Christian already, you're struggling in some ways, we want to pray with you. But we're going to pray out a prayer together. And I want us to not mumble it, but to give it our all. And then we're going to sing a song that is based on the Apostles' Creed, which is a, a creed, creed just means belief, what we, what we believe. And this has been a creed that's been written about 1,600 years ago about the things that unite us, the things that make us one. Who God is and what he's done is what unites us. And we're going to sing those truths together. But we're going, to, we're going to read this prayer out together. So let's do that, shall we? It's going to come up on the screen. Oh, well, it's already there. Brilliant. Father God, today we commit ourselves again to living for you and for your purposes in the world. You have redeemed us. You have won us. We are your people. We are your church, the household of God. We are the body of Christ on this earth. We are the people whom you dwell amongst. We are the pillar of truth, holding Jesus out to the world. We are the bride of Christ, longing for the great day when he returns. We are living to make your name great in our day, Lord Jesus. Here in Ipswich and out into the nations you send us to. We commit ourselves to honouring you in the relationships in our lives. We commit ourselves to trusting and obeying your word, even when we don't fully understand. We commit ourselves to giving of our finances and our talents for your purposes. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. We give our all to seeing your church shine bright in these dark times. We are all in for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour, our great Captain. Amen. Let's applaud the Lord, shall we? We're His. Let's sing to Him.